Hello and welcome to the podcast Invest in You. Today we've got a guest from America again. Uh, I'm not sure how they sneak into this podcast. <laughs> uh, David, welcome to the show. Um, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that I somehow was able to cross the border and uh, get into this podcast. I appreciate it. No problem at all. I mean, the, the advantage of podcasts, you don't need to have any kind of vaccination. You don't need to have a COVID pass. You can just travel and learn from anyone you want in the world. So, yeah, uh, I'm I'm really happy to have you on, on the podcast because you have got more experience than me. And I'm really happy about that. And uh, also... Um, I was looking back down your CV way back. I remember I was a quite early adopter to to the internet. So I had an email in like yeah about mid nineties, and I also started to like trading on the stock market via internet. Also like mid nineties, and uh, my one of my first email accounts was with Yahoo. Well, you know, so, the, the, fu- the funny you, thing about, <laughs> yeah, the funny thing about that for those who, who, who haven't seen my CV, which is probably everybody who's listening to this. Um, I worked at Yahoo from 2002 to 2008. I, I consider that Yahoo's heyday or second heyday. The first yeah. heyday was 95 to about 99. And then the second window was about 2002 to 2007, where yes. Yahoo was going great guns and was really at the top of the game, the top of the whole field. Um, back in those days. And I, I still keep my Yahoo email address because I'm so loyal to Yahoo. And sometimes people, people think I'm a dinosaur because I still, I still use it. I don't just keep it. I use it. And then people kind of look at me funny, but, uh, I also have a Gmail account of course, but, uh, yeah. So Yahoo was part of my, uh, part of my growing up. Perfect. So one one reason why we're on this call at all is actually you have, have written a book. We'll dive a lot deeper into that one. Uh, you're also working uh, with the university, so you have helped companies at so many different stages. So what's the short version of a long experience? Well, so the, the short version of my background is I've always been a storyteller. Uh, you know, uh, growing up, I was a storyteller and I have some stories about that, um, in terms of, you know, writing stories, uh, for entertainment purposes. Um, I did, I was involved in journalism when I was younger. And then I went, when I went into business, I got into the storytelling end of business. Uh, I did advertising and marketing for uh, a long, long time, um, going back to the eighties actually. And, um, and it's only in the last 15 years that I turned all of that focus towards how can I help founders and innovators of all kinds, product people, anyone who's creating something new, tell their story. And, uh, and, and that's what I've been doing for the past 15 years. And that's what led to, to the book, uh, get yeah. your startup story straight. So storytelling is a hugely powerful tool to have in your belt. Uh, if you're going to try to do any kind of selling or influencing or creating a community, uh, it's massively valuable also to people doing copywriting but today we'll dive deep into why this is so important for entrepreneurs and yeah. uh, wh- why does storytelling make a difference compared to just yeah the usual short well i'll tell you what i've experienced working with founders um i've seen this incredible thing happen when i talk to a founder about their project or a product person about their project and we talk about it in the context of a story. Let's talk about this as a story, we'll say. And who's the protagonist in your story? 
And they'll say, well, I am, I built this thing. I said, no, no, no. The protagonist in the product story is not you. And then they're like, well, is it the customer? I said, yes, it's the customer. And once that flip, that switch is flipped in, in, in the founder's mind, in the innovator's mind, they start, suddenly start to think about what they're building differently. Because now what they're doing is they're thinking, oh, wait, they have a life. They're a, they're, they're a fully formed person. There's something they're struggling with in life in general. And there's some particular issue they have, again, whether it's a consumer or a business issue, and, um, and they don't like it. And it's, there's a big conflict in their story and they have to overcome that. And when you get a founder in that mind space, they start to think about their business differently. They get more focused on what they're actually building. So I found that the storytelling thing isn't just about getting people excited about your idea at the end yep. of that process. But it's actually figuring out what am I building in the first place? And if you think about it in the form of a narrative, it changes up a little bit how you think about it. Yeah. And think about storytelling, actually, to communicate with the characters, maybe even in real life, can help show up in that product as well. Is that uh, down the line what are you thinking as well? To actually yeah, communicate well, with them? Yeah, well, for sure, one of the audiences you have to communicate with is your customers. In Love fact, it. that's the most important audience. If you don't ever get customers, you're never going to get investors or other employees to join your team. Mm -hmm. uh, so somewhere along the way, you have to convince customers that what you're building is going to make their lives different and better. Uh, part of the process that I talk about when I talk about building the narrative is landing on a great value proposition. What's the, how is, how is your user's life going to be different and better if they use the thing you've created? And if you can say that succinctly, then you're off to the races. Um, and that conversation is between you and your customer. Of course, ultimately, you can also share that with investors and prospective employees and anybody else to help them understand why you're building what you're building. But, but really nailing that is, is that compact between you and your customer. They, they, they have to have their lives improved by working with you and, and using your product or service. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yes, one second. Ivan, I'm doing a podcast. Um, that was the oldest son. He's actually one of the co-hosts usually, but he's decided he's too busy with his studies. And oh, the that's other, a good e thing. Even younger student, uh, also a son, also co-host. Actually, they've been podcast hosts since they were 12 and, and yeah, 12 and 14. And they were interviewing fantastic people like yourself since they were that young. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I started the podcast in the first place, to get them to engage and ask stranger questions than we might come up with. Well, you know, if I could just jump in there, Go for it. that is illustrative of one of the reasons why I wrote this book. Um, and that is, it's so much easier for people to do things now that they could never do before. If your son wanted to have a, a, a medium to communicate to the world when they were 12 years old, yes. 30 or 40 years ago, it just, there's no way. I mean, maybe they could have written in their, in their school newspaper, yes. um, but there's no way they could really do that. But to now there's, there's so many different ways for people to innovate, for people to have access to the innovation process, to have access to media channels, that this book is so much more universal because so many people have an opportunity to say, hey, I want to do this thing and make something better. Uh, and they could be 12 years old. Uh, exactly. So, so the idea of this book was to really lean into the fact that there's so much more accessibility for innovation. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, and another side, we haven't got into the storytelling yet, is uh, I work with lots of owners, founders, and they need to get the story right so they can tell the world, not only the customers, but quite often also 
people who might invest into their company. And they've heard it all, they've seen it all, and seen the pitch decks might get very, very similar. And that's why a little story can be the icing on the cake. What, what have you got to say to that? Well, most innovators who are founders who have a startup, uh, and the book is called Get Your Startup Story Straight. Exactly. It's, it's, it's not just for founders, but they're sort of the, the core audience for this. They come to the book for that. They come to the book because they want to improve their pitch. My hope is once they read the book, uh, they'll discover it's going to help them with a lot more than that. It's going to yeah. actually help them make sure they're building the right thing and, and selling it to the right person or set of people. Um, but they come to it because they want help there. And my goal in their working with them, and now obviously through their reading the book, is to not only figure out how to structure the story, but how can I sit in a room with other people and make them feel what my customer feels? Yes. Because if I'm pitching to an investor and I can do something in the way that I'm telling the story that makes them feel the struggles of the person I'm building my invention for, yes. then what do you think they're going to be doing? They're, they're going to be rooting for you to solve the problem. Oh, that's terrible that they have that problem. I'm sorry that they feel that way. That's really awful they're going through that. Can you help them? And then, of course, if you're telling the story, well, yep. you say, yes, I can help them. I built this great thing that solves that problem. And because of the way we respond to stories as humans, when we hear about someone struggling with something, a conflict in their personal story, we, we, we're rooting for them to overcome that obstacle. And that's exactly what you're doing as an innovator. You're helping someone mm -hmm. through an obstacle. And if you can make your audience feel that, you're on your way. Yeah. So another thing I love with communicating with customers and other people is the power of questions. Do you see the, the place for questions in your story as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, oh, th 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 there's two places where I think about questions in this process. The yeah. first place is you as the storyteller. The only way you're going to build a great story is to ask a million questions of your customer um, until you figure out, do I actually have the right customer? And by asking the right questions of your customer and asking over and over again, why do you feel that way? Why does that bother you? But why do you say that? Why do you say that? Ask that question three times in a row. Eventually, you'll get to what's really simmering and bugging um, your customer so that you can figure out, oh, if that's what's troubling them, I better build a product that addresses that deep-seated emotion. Right. And I also need to make sure that you know when I solve that, that I've addressed that. And when I talk about it, I want to talk about that deep-seated emotion. So that's where the questioning comes in, in your part of telling the story. If you've built a great story, you should be able to field questions very comfortably because you really understand the narrative. And if you don't know the answer to a question, when you're fielding a question from an investor, as I'm sure you've advised people, don't make something up. Say, yes. I don't know. That's a great question. Let me dig into that. Because yes. I've seen the opposite and it gets ugly fast. Yeah, especially when people start to wing it in terms of numbers as well. That's become almost, yeah, comical. Yeah, you want, you, you want to be sure that, you know, look, we have thought about this. Let me tell you how we're addressing that question that you have. But if you haven't thought about it, A, or B, you've thought about it, but you haven't come up with a good answer yet, say, we've thought about it, but we really haven't solved for that yet. It's a great question and we're working on it. And here are the things we're doing to try and address that question. Um, but the worst thing you can do is say, oh, well, the way we're going to handle that is, and then make something up on the fly that you haven't thought about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't maybe deliver on either because it was not right in the first place. Good, good, good. Uh, you come slightly more from the marketing aspect. I come slightly more from the sales. And I think that's uh, another 
topic just to touch upon. Um, have you ever got any good examples of where marketing and sales have been passing each other, almost like contradicting each other? I'd love to hear a story of how we should not do it, please. Yeah, well, I think I think that happens sometimes when um when first and foremost, what if the salesperson has the advantage if you're in a business where there is a sales organization? Um, and obviously most B2B has some sales organization, not yes. all, but most. Uh, where the salesperson is the one speaking to the customer. And if they're listening well, they're actually hearing from the customer what their issues are and how they're doing with the product and, and what, what's going on with them in the field. Perfect. And in some organizations, you'll have a sales support team that comes in and really maybe gets to know the customer better or an account person who manages an account. But that organization, that sales organization has that direct customer contact. And the most important thing you have to do as a marketing person is listen to them. And say, you know, here's some important things that, you know, you need to understand about what the customer is saying, because somewhere in there, they may be discovering that magical insight that turns into a great part of your marketing story. So that that communication from sales into marketing is so important. And when that doesn't happen, there can be a real disconnect. I'll give you maybe an illustration of um, where this didn't happen as much. and, and And I had an opportunity in my job at Yahoo to try and address this. In the late 90s, Yahoo was so excited about what they were doing that they kind of went out into the world and they said, um, you know, we've got this great platform. It reaches hundreds of millions of people. You need to advertise on Yahoo. Um, And they didn't spend a lot of time figuring out, well, what did the advertising customers want to do? How did they want to leverage this new interactive platform? And Yahoo's point of view was just, hey, you just need to be here. Well, in the early 2000s, and I joined around 2002, the organization was building a sales organization that actually respected the customers deeply, had come from the publishing world. And they spent time listening to the customers and finding out what they wanted. And and my job in marketing was to to take that into our organization and figure out what products did we actually have to build? What story did we have to create to solve these issues? for these customers in a way that we could only solve them on a digital platform like Yahoo going all the way back. You said you were using Yahoo at the beginning for an email address. Well, advertisers was using, were using Yahoo even before Google existed as an advertising platform. And we had to, we had to solve that problem for people. Yeah, I do remember I've been working with a very similar organization, (laughs) not so many out there, also very, very large and uh, working with a sales force and sales leadership, I noticed that they don't seem to track how much they're selling. They they are more interested in how much they improve and make tweaks for their customers. And I've not come across that in, in the sales organization where the focus is not ultimately on, on the bottom line. Uh, but one thing possibly leads to, to another. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason why I want you just to address the question is we have been working in two different fields which should be really aligned, but too often they are in silos. I just want to mention that. And for people who got their own startup, you don't need to worry too much because you don't have too many people yet. <laughs> but it happens pretty quickly, right? I mean, it's I not long before you hire a salesperson and you hire a marketing person and somebody has to make sure that uh, they're in lockstep. Um, and it is, uh, I, I've certainly have seen it in many organizations where there's a big struggle between the two. Um, yeah. But it's yeah. essential because again, one is the, is, is the, front of the organization that's dealing with the customers. The other is, is trying to help the 
product side figure out what to build, exactly. Exactly. they have to be connected. Yeah, I've, I've seen where they've been very much like an orchestra where they've been playing really well together as well. So they they not only yeah. play together, they actually work and plan together. Therefore, you can have campaigns which are actually addressing the right things, the marketing is spent on the right... Yeah, you see what I mean? Well, one, of, one, of the, one of the reasons why I think this book can be useful, not just to product people and innovators, but to sales and marketing people, yeah. um, is that when you come up with a strong narrative, a strong story for your product, uh, it aligns the organization. Uh, because everybody knows when they wake up in the morning and they go to work, what the story is of like, why are we selling this product? Why are we building this product? Why are we marketing it? Because there's a customer, there's something they can't quite get right. There's something that's that's in their way. And we actually help them clear that hurdle really well. And we do it differently and better than the competitors in, in this space, at least for this set of customers because of X, Y, or Z. Exactly. And once we have that common story, and and many organizations don't get this right. But once we have a common story, then marketing and sales are, are more on the same page in terms of how they talk about what's going on. And when those are at cross purposes, that's where you run into problems. Yeah. Yeah. And, and often the story can be about something also greater and bigger than even the, the company as such and the customers. It can be about the, the greater cause. So it might be when we move to space, it could be anything at all. And just that higher level, higher thinking and, and aspiration visionary can pull yeah, a lot of staff and, and customers into uh, this story and would like to be part of it as well. How, how Absolutely. Yeah, I call that uh, a purpose narrative. Um, like it. Obviously, it would be great if all organizations could create a purpose narrative. Yep. But uh, in the book, in the third section of the book, I talk about story archetypes. And one story archetype is what I, the purpose narrative. Yep. And okay. that's where it's very clear to everybody why you're coming to work and what the connection is between the work you're doing and how the world is going to be a better place. Uh, there's an example in my book of a company called ShotSpotter, which operates in urban areas where gun violence is a big problem. Uh, unfortunately, that tends to be a very American phenomenon. Uh, it does exist in some other parts in the world, uh, uh, and this co company operates in other parts of the world, but yes. mostly in America. And what they do is they set up these uh, pieces of hardware in in neighborhoods where there's there's too much gun violence. Any gun violence is too much, but it tends to be a, a, a reasonably prominent thing that happens. Yes, it, it detects the the sounds and then it it triangulates them and it tells the police through an alert exactly where the guns went off. And the perp, you'd think that the basic story of that, well, it helps police solve crimes, which it does. And it helps police show up and save victims of crimes quickly, which it also does. Because in these yes. areas, 80% of the time, people never report the gunshot. They're so used to it, they just don't even report it. So they need this tool to get the police to show up. So, so that's sort of the more obvious story. But the larger purpose narrative is when they get the police to show up, the people in the community trust the police more. If you had gunfire in front of your house and the police didn't show up time after time, right in front of your house, Frederick, would you trust the police? Not of course really. not. <laughs> but if they come, if they arrive when a terrible thing like a gunshot happens, you're going to believe to have, you're going to start to have a better connection to the police. And the like, greater purpose yep. of this business is to create that connection and build community. Perfect. Perfect. So let, let's jump into some of the, like, the, the ideas you like the most from your own book. And that can be anything at all. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the first idea is that stories have a structure and that you have to know what that structure is so you can then overlay a classic story structure on your innovation story. You have to know who the protagonist is. You have to know what their motivations are, and you have to have some insights about what's motivating them. You have to understand the conflict in the story. You have to understand how their life will be better if they yeah. use your product. Uh, that You have to be able to pretty succinctly describe what your product does, and you have to be able to do all of that in a way that says, this is better than the way you're currently doing it. That is your core product narrative. And so one of the primary ideas in the book, and this is what the first third of the book is about, is how do I build this story? And I give many examples of, of different startups and other product leaders who have come up with the different aspects and really sort of nailed each part of that story structure. So that's probably the biggest, uh, the biggest and, mo and most central part of the book is you have to, you can't tell a great story unless you have a great story to tell and to have a great story in the first place, you have to build it. You have to know how to build a good story. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds very much like the, in a way following the, the classical hero uh, story journey in a way to that we can all, if we are aware of the structure can find in, in movies in books, uh, guess what? Why? Because the brains cannot like that structure. <laughs> we love it. We've literally evolved as a species to respond yes. to story, right? And we, 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 we get curious if the story is set up well, and we're, we're desperate to know how is this story going to end. Uh, I, I show in, in classes that I teach, I like to show trailers for movies. And one of the movies I show a trailer for is Coco, which is a Disney film, um, a Pixar Disney film. And it starts with this boy who's trying to be a musician and he has to hide to play his guitar because the family says there's a curse and no one in the family can play music because the great grandfather played music left, never right. came back and the yep. family suffered. Once that premise is set up, you want to watch the whole movie to find out is the kid going to get to play music? It's his passion yeah. and he can't do it. And, and yet, and that exact same structure is something that we're very familiar with in all the stories we've ever heard if they're set up well. And therefore, if you could set up your innovation story, in that way exactly. and get people leaning in and wondering, Ooh, this poor person, they want this thing and they can't have it. Um, I wish they could have it. And then they're like, well, how are they going to get it? Well, the way they're going to get it is by this great thing I've created. Right. Yeah. And you've, you've re really leaned into the way people respond to stories um, in building your, your story structure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Perfect. Yeah. Love to dig deep into that. And I will. And, uh, and the next thing is you're also teaching at university. Is that right? Yes, at Berkeley Haas School of Business. Tell, tell me more. How is it to teach younger people and also some older people? Uh, so basically, slightly more adult learning. How is that? We, we well, spoke about before we, we, we hit record here that yeah. I like teaching. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's, it's what's, what's wonderful about teaching is how much we learn as the teacher. It's something you never realize as a student, uh, but teachers will tell you they learn more from their students than they ever teach them. They feel that way anyway. Um, this, this book is a result of 12 or 14 years of teaching and spending time coaching and advising founders and students and product people uh, because they, they ask questions that you oh, I have to think about that. Or they lay out a framework or they say, hey, I read this thing over here. Or I saw this clip over here. And you're constantly learning from your students. I, I've worked with students who are anywhere from undergraduate to 
graduate business students who tend to be in, in their 20s, the undergrads are 18 to 22. Yes. But I also spent a ton of time with mid-career professionals who are anywhere from you know 30 to 50. Yes. And uh, sometimes a little bit older, but that's probably the sweet spot. And each one of those demographics is so different in terms of how they respond to the teaching because <laughs> of their life experience. Indeed. If you teach someone who's in their 30s and they have children, they will react much differently to a, a story of an arc of a story than someone who doesn't have children, um, as just one example. And, and, and you have to think about that in telling the story. If there's someone who doesn't understand that life experience, how do I bring them into that story so they can connect to it, even if it's not their life experience? Because good storytellers have to do that. But we learn yeah, so you. much from our students, and it and is very different depending on their, their age. Yeah, no, I, a number of years ago, I was coaching and mentoring lots of people who did investments in uh, real estate and yes i did also not only coach and mentor i was also doing at the time which i see very good as a role model but my learning was accelerated so much more because i had all their their hard work mistakes challenges deals appraisals and and, and successes uh, as, as a side effect in my life as well which was like huge learning as well so for people who like to help others to, to coach and help and maybe mentor someone uh, is a learning journey for you, certainly, uh, as, yeah. as you evolve as well. And, and, you, and what you do is you take the examples that you've been through with other people and then you can share them with others. Yes. And in my teachings, I would do that. And it's why ultimately I wrote Get Your Startup Story Straight. I wrote yep. this book uh, because uh, I thought here's a way to share those learnings and all these different stories that I've heard from founders uh, more broadly outside of the classroom that I teach it. Yeah. We've had a, more, more, a high number of authors on this book. I love to dig into the process of writing uh, the book for some people who are listening who would love to have, because it is a good way to, to get across to the world, to put pen to paper. How was your writing journey, please? A few, few so, ideas. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, first of all, I, I've always loved writing. Um, I, I, I've, I've always felt I haven't quite done enough of it. Uh, when I was younger, I wrote in newspapers and magazines, and I wrote a couple of musicals when I was in college. Um, and, and then as I started to get into the teaching, I actually started to write down uh, classes that I was going to teach in these, ace, new, these new asynchronous classes that are videoed. Uh, oh, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. put online where the students will consume the content, watch the videos, and then we'll have a live class where we talk about it. That you know, flipping the classroom is the way we talk about exactly. it in education now. And I was writing these things down, and I started to have all these lessons that were written out because I would get in front of a teleprompter and read them. And um, and I started thinking about that. And so many people asked me, David, when are you going to write the book? That when the <laughs> When the pandemic hit, I was like, I've already got a start. I've got about 15, 20, 30 stories written out. Um, I just have to come up with a structure, tailor these a little bit more for the format of a book, and off we go. And so, and so that's what I did during the pandemic. I took all of that and, and turned it into a structure. I hired an editor uh, before I even yep. found a publisher, which was really instrumental in having getting out of my own head and getting someone to come in and say, hey, this isn't clear, or this probably belongs over here. And that editor really helped me uh, with, the, with the process of writing the book. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Now, uh, to just steal one idea from what you said, just to reiterate it is, your book gets way better if you engage other people. 
guess what? Your customers might want to have a word in what it might look like. They might have ideas about which stories to pick. And you can crowdsource and engage your readers before it's written. Ta-da. Yeah, I actually, you know, in a way I was doing that for 14 years of, of teaching yep, where yep. you get feedback from the class. This is working. They like this. This just doesn't work so much. I'm okay. not going to use that. Nice. So I was constantly refining my work that way, but I also shared early versions of the book with several entrepreneurs and, right. and people who teach entrepreneurship and said, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and I, I got some really to... good feedback from them. Yeah. Uh, one thing I really appreciated when I did my own many, many years at universities uh, is when you had the combination of both the academic and the practitioner, I, I always appreciated more the people who also had hands-on experience, not only the academia. There's nothing wrong with only academia uh, at all. But for me personally, I am a practitioner and operator in, in my soul, uh, having worked with military for many years as well. <laughs> the, the, the way we often taught in the military was actually learning by doing. Uh, yeah. And, and not only observing and sitting down. Yeah. Well, you know, this was um, when I started to work at Berkeley High School of Business, I'd spent my entire career operating. Yes, I wasn't exactly. an academic. Exactly. I, 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 did, I wasn't a researcher. <laughs> um, I was an operator. And what was interesting, as I said, let me, I want to be an executive in residence. And, um, exactly. and, and that's a title that we use sometimes in schools. And, but I want to be in residence, right? So I made sure that I actually spent time on campus and held office hours because I remembered when I was in business school 150 years ago, exactly. um, uh, there, there were executives in residence, but I never saw them exactly because they weren't yeah. really in residence. They just, it was a title. They'd show up once a, once a quarter. And, and so I, what I, I made a point of holding office hours, spending time with students, um, being involved in various different programs, um, uh, and that ultimately led to the sort of the course of study that I taught and that I'm now now writing about. Uh, but being on campus was important. And I believe that because students do want that, want to hear from people who have been out in the field. In fact, Berkeley has this incredible professional faculty. It's now over 100 people who are professionals who are coming in and teaching. They really lean into that in the business Indeed. school. Yeah, no, I, I really like that concept. And for those people in academia listening, I'm still looking for the right universe to be exactly that, to, to be an entrepreneur in, in residence somewhere. And unfortunately, it's really rare in Sweden where I'm physically at this very moment, but in the UK, it's still quite popular. Uh, and I have got many friends who are exactly that, so entrepreneur in, in residence, and, and, and they are active um, as well. And I've seen the transition from, from a practitioner into academic with quite a few friends and uh it is it's a reprogramming as well <laughs> yeah no, there's no question about that but uh, look it, it takes both right you really I need know, the I academic know. folks exactly. who bring that discipline and you need the professional folks who've been out in the field exactly that's good perfect all right so let's jump back to another idea from the book so we're talking about like the 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 part one of the book. Right, what's, right. What's so the, let's go to part two. Part two, yeah, go for it. So part two. So part one, we've now built this great story. Yeah. We have all the story elements. We know how they fit together. We're feeling really good about the story. And we also think that it's told us enough to make sure that we're actually building the right product. Because a big part of writing that first part is to get the product right. Now we're ready to get people excited about it. Yep. Now we're ready to tell others about it. And the key there is to, I always say there's three objectives for a storyteller. You want people to, to, to remember your story. You want them to understand it. 
and you want them to be compelled by it, meaning you want them to go, oh, this is a good idea. This is, this is a logical, sound idea. And to achieve those three objectives, you need to do a lot of different things. Uh, on the memory part, which is one of the most important aspects in the, in the storytelling segment of the book, um, the way we tap into memory, the way our brain works, is if we feel something emotionally, we're up to, according to some cognitive uh, psychologists, up to 22 times more likely to remember information if it comes in the envelope of a story, an emotional story, right? Yes. If it taps into emotion, it makes you feel something. You're, you're either laughing or you're, you're not maybe quite crying, but you're feeling, oh my God, that's terrible. You're moved somehow. You, you feel something because our emotional part of our brain and the insula is, is connected to the memory centers. And um, so anybody who's trying to tell the story of their product, who doesn't tap into emotion, is leaving all this stuff on the table. Like, look, you're, you're missing this huge opportunity to get your audience to walk away and actually remember what you said because you didn't tap into emotion. So use emotion. And there's many techniques to tap into emotion. And in the book, I talk about them. As one example, if you tell a personal story, something that you yourself experienced, uh, you may be the customer uh, in your innovation narrative. It may, you may have built this product because you had the experience that you wanted to fix. Or you might have met somebody who was the customer in the story. Maybe tell the story of, of their experience. You might be building someone something for a cancer patient, and you listen to that customer, and you tell the story of, I was working with this, this person named Mary who's going through and managing her cancer treatment, and it was incredibly moving. And, and you will get emotional telling that story. Your eyes might twinkle a little little bit. Your audience will see and feel that. And because of the way humans react, unless you're a sociopath, um, you will feel what your storyteller is feeling. It, it, that's the way our brain works. Um, and you'll start to empathize with the character in that story. So telling a personal story is often a great way into the narrative, even if you're not the customer in the story. Um, so that's just one example of a way to tap into emotion. And there are many, many more examples in the book of how to tap into emotion, how to lean into the logic, how to be clear and understandable and concise. Um, that's what that, that second section of the book is about. Yeah. So for those uh, who can't see the, well, our video here, which is like pretty much all of you, uh, I'm nodding a lot <laughs> in recognition and agree and also agreement. Uh, it, if if I really... can say something to, to, to Fred, to that, to that point, when I spend time with people who aren't classic storytellers, they're engineers, they're product people. They do the same thing because they're like, yeah, I get what a story. Yes, right. That's true. That's <laughs> what human beings do. And in some ways, all I'm doing in the book and in the work that I do is pointing out things that we all know about how we behave, but somehow when we get in a business setting, we set it aside. We say, I shouldn't behave like that in a business setting. I shouldn't get emotional. I shouldn't tell stories. It's a business. And uh, it couldn't be further from the truth because one of the best ways to be successful as a business is to make that connection on a human level and have people understand your customer on a human level. Um, and that's what storytelling helps you do. Exactly. And, and people don't really care about what you say. I say that one more time. People don't care about what you say, but they do care about the way you make them feel. There's a famous Maya Angelou quote. I think it's Maya Angelou, which is um, yeah. basically no one's going to ever remember what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel. And I, yeah, think, exactly. I think that's yeah. who it comes yeah, I, from. I know, it, I know the quote, but I could not, rec 
collect the exact quote, but the, the theme is exactly what they have said there. Uh, and you know that the minute this is over, I'm going to check that out, and I'm, I, I bet I ascribed it to the wrong person. Yeah, and I've used it in my right. teaching as well. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Well, we'll, but, um, we'll, we'll make sure really after close. this we, we, we go back and loop back and get that right. <laughs> Perfect. Good one. All right. So at, at this stage, we talk a little bit about the university. We talk a little bit about Yahoo. We talked a bit about uh, the books, part one and two. Guess, guess what I will ask next? Uh, I, what's next? Maybe I'll shoehorn in, I'll shoehorn in two questions for you here. One is, uh, the podcast name is invest in you. When I say invest in you, what does that mean for yourself? Um, I always think when I think about investing in yourself is first understanding yourself. And uh, and I've, I've coached so many young people uh, on their career paths and on their, on their, innovation paths. Um, and so much, much of it comes down to who are you? What are you best at? What do you love to do? The way to really invest in yourself is to first figure that out. Yep. And then once you figure that out and you realize, like for me, it's storytelling. Um, and it took me a while, but at some point in my career, I was like, wait a minute. I mean, and of course, most of my choices were in that path, but I was, yep. you know, this is what I like to do. And when, frankly, I left the corporate world and decided to do my own thing, everything I did had something to do with storytelling. Um, and then ultimately, I write a book about it, right? Um, but point is, I spent some time reflecting on what did I enjoy most? Where did I get most excited? What in my career or in, even in my life up until that point did I seem to enjoy and do well at? And once you figure that out, then the next step in investing in yourself is finding opportunities where you can do a lot of that, right? Not every job is going to be all of what you're good at, but you want it to be at least 50% or more. Ideally, I always like to say, get to 70 or 80% of that job being what you're really good at. And then the other 20 or 30% is either what you have to do to do the job or what you, you need to do to learn and get better in these other areas. Great. Great general advice to everyone out there. And the second one is, uh, what has been your favorite office so far? And that can mean anything at all. My favorite what? office. Office. I'm not sure I understand the question. My Oh, my favorite. My, okay. That's a, that's a language thing. By office, you mean the role that I had in different companies? No, I mean the place where you have actually physically worked. And that for some people, that is on the beach. And for some people, it is in, in the home. Or for so some you people, literally mean office. Office, office, yes. And yeah. office can mean anything. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, yes. No, I, I get it. Because I was thinking office, the role when I was chief marketing officer here Thank or you. president of an agency or something. Yep. Um, so uh, this one is kind of hard to beat because I can go out and work in my garden in the middle of the day if I yep. get stuck or bored. Um, and I love to do that. I love to go out in my garden in the middle of the day. Um, but I would have to say my favorite office was um, when I worked in my first internet company. Um, and it's really a toss up between my first internet company and Yahoo. Uh, but when I worked at my first internet company, it was the first startup I worked in. It was 1998. It was in San Francisco and South of Market where all that, that fervent energy was going on. I see what you mean. Early startups. It was a brick building with brick walls. And the company was this fascinating company that was started by people who worked on the America's Cup races. In fact, they, they were the first team from Australia to win the America's Cup. Uh, they started a company called Quokka Sports, 
which was going to reinvent the way we watch sports. And they were going to use the internet to cover sports in a new and different way. It was a fabulous company. And because it had this racing um, sort of heritage, they, the, the cubicles were broken up in, in terms of um, these, these little barriers are made up out of sailing material. So you literally had cubes separated by pieces of sails. Um, it was incredibly charming and it was very exciting because it was at the beginning of the internet. There were beanbag chairs everywhere. It was sort of right out of central casting for a startup office. So that probably wins the prize. Absolutely great. Now, the, the, the reason why that question is, uh, we probably had 80 plus guests on the podcast and, and we are all different and that's the quirkiness. And I don't know anyone else in, in the world who's asking that stupid question. And, and that's why I, I, I love that question. <laughs> I've, I've heard podcasts where they ask people, what's your, you know, what's your favorite, you know, movie that you're watching right yeah, now or television true. series or favorite restaurant in San Francisco. But yeah. um, I love that question. Yeah. I, I like to repeat to previous guests because one, uh, her name is Stacy, Stacy Kehoe. And she said, my best office is actually my office because it's she's got her own company, marketing agency, and for her, it is the first office that is her office where she puts yeah. her fingerprint, her culture, herself into, uh, yeah, not necessarily bricks and mortar, but what's on the inside. And I think that was a really cool one. The other one is from an, in a famous slash infamous American and he said, Ivan Charlie was on the call as well. And he said, uh, basically, he was ex- explaining his private jet, but without saying that it was the jet. And my kids, they did not connect. Like, what do you mean? Like 12,000 meters up in the air, traveling at this speed. It, it took a, a moment to, to visualize that. Well, that was his favorite office. You know, that reminds me of a, of a, a story. Um, I was working in an ad agency uh, called J. Walter Thompson in the eighties and working, or actually this was in the nineties now. And, and I had a client in Kansas city. Uh, Sprint was the client, the telecom company. And I had to fly back from Kansas city to San Francisco. And this, the president of the company was taking the company jet back when I was going back. And he asked me if I wanted to go. I said, sure. Yep. So I got in the corporate jet and this was back in the early nineties before email. So each of the, the, the president and the vice president of sales were in the jet and I was with a couple other people and they had these giant folders of mail of actually tangible paper mail for people who are not old enough to remember that, which is yep. probably most of your viewers. <laughs> and they went through the flight and the, the seats were elevated, but there was like a, the, the alley, the, the walkway was, was dropped down. And by the end of the flight, the entire walkway was filled with all the paper, they'd read the papers. And if they were done with it, they throw it in the, in the pathway in between. And by the end of the flight, it had filled up right to the top where their seats were. I've never seen anything like it. It's the only corporate jet I ever flew on. Um, and that's, was my experience because it was before email. Yeah. I share a a failure story on on the theme of storytelling. Uh, I was asked to come in for a a very large company called Ford, uh, to talk about maybe getting, uh, consultant job to train basically all of the salespeople all over the United Kingdom and Ireland. So a quite big size role for, for the company. And I was doing the, the pitch and it was at the end of the day of pitching. So I was the last one out, which can be really good or really bad. Uh, I had very clear instruction, like no questions, just present. Like 
really? That's that's really not how I like this to do any kind of pitching at all. Right, right. Make uh, it a conversation. Exactly. If I if I only would have broken the rules and done what I usually do is to connect with the audience, number one, just by saying like, how was your day? I'm sure the seats are very comfortable or anything to make them crack up in right. a smile or, or like, and they say how, how crazy the situation is. I didn't because I follow the brief, which I can almost guarantee that is the reason why I didn't get it. Um, so yeah, lesson learned. Don't always follow the brief. Connect yep. with your audience. Connect with your audience. Whatever way to do that. Um, yeah. And you know this this is an important lesson for uh, the storyteller when they're getting up in front of an audience is try and grab them right away. Yeah. One way to grab your audience right away is by asking a question. That's a very common strategy. Another way to do it is by saying something provocative. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget one of our founders, a, a Frenchman uh, who, who came to Berkeley to study. His name is Thibault Duchemin. And Thibault started his presentation by saying, my parents are deaf. My sister is deaf. And then he went on to, and, and but a handful of words. And you're like, what was that like for you growing? You want to know what was that experience like? And then what are you going <laughs> to be working on that's going to fit into that story? And he went on to talk about how if you have, a, if you're in a deaf community, group conversation with people who can speak and hear is difficult because someone's saying something over there. And if you're looking at that and then someone says something over here, you miss it, right? Because yep. you didn't see, you, even if you read lips, you didn't see it. And he starts his presentation with that premise. He says, there's 400 million people who have this problem and I'm going to solve it. He does that in about 20 or 30 seconds. And you're like, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm leaning in. Tell, I'm me, leaning tell, me, tell, me. <laughs> tell me, how are you going to solve this problem? And so it's, it's one of the lessons in part two of the book, um, vertical takeoff. We call this vertical takeoff. Think about the way a James Bond movie starts, right? It starts with a chase scene. Yeah, full Why is it starting with Bond? He's hanging off the pads of a helicopter, fighting someone for his life over a, a Dio de los Muertos parade in, in Mexico city. Why? Uh, to get the audience on the edge of their seat, to get them to lean in, to get their cortisol activated because it's agitated, you're agitated. Um, and now you're locked into the movie and off you go, right? So there's, there's a reason why entertainers do that. And there's reasons why presenters and storytellers need to do that. How do we grab people from the get-go? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yet another thing to share with the audience, again, who can't see us is, David is very good because he's getting me very interested. So I'm believing in pretty much I'll be hanging over the table since we started this conversation. I like it. Thank you. Thanks for keeping yeah. me on my toes. Well, it's like, you know, practice what you preach, right? Absolutely. If you can't, you know, if you can't, you know, one of the things that's interesting about uh, the work that I do is I've, I've been doing a lot over the last two years through Zoom. And, you know, there are times where people will, will uh, many times where people won't show their face. It's easier. They want it. They're eating something. There's background stuff going on or they're shy, whatever. But I teach storytelling and I say, please, please put your camera on because part of storytelling is your facial expression. Look at my eyes. They're different now than they are now. Indeed. And that's like, why is David's eyes open? Why, why, why is he getting excited about this point? He's waving his hands around. And we all have to do that in a way that's natural to us. But, but our bodies are part of the instrument that we use as a storyteller and our faces. Um, so in the work that I do, I want to see people and I want them to see me. I mean, of course they could see me, but I want to see them yep. so we can work on those skills. Yeah. And you would like to see how the audience is reacting. Like, did that actually make sense to them? 
and and I'm <laughs> so so this is this is right. This is this goes back to what we we're just talking about in terms of having a conversation. One of the things you have to understand as the storyteller is that it's not a one-way thing. You are literally having a conversation with the audience, even if they're not speaking. Yep. They don't have to say a word. They're right now. You're nodding your head, right? So that's I'm saying. Okay, I'm 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 connecting here, right? Because I can see that you're engaged. If you were looking off to the side, if you were you know looking out at the northern lights or wondering when your kid was going to come in and 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 interrupt you to end this, <laughs> then I'd have to go. Oh, I better change up. Right. Because I'm reading my audience. And as a salesperson, you know that you had to do that as a salesperson. Absolutely. But as a storyteller, maybe when you're presenting to one person, it's a little easier. But if it's a room of people, you have to look around the whole room. Are they are they keeping up with me? Am I holding their interest? Are they understanding what I'm saying? Sometimes you can look at your audience and you can tell they didn't even get that. Yeah. I have to go back over that because <laughs> I could tell they didn't understand what I just said. And this is all part of what makes storytelling a conversation. And I literally teach this in my classes. Think of it as a conversation, read your audience and have that direct you in, in sort of how fastly you move your story along, how quickly rather, or whether you spend more time in a particular phase of the story. Yeah, no, uh, another team of storytellers who are a bit crazy. One reason why I like British English is a team called Monty Python. Uh, <laughs> and the Monty Python generations uh, must be a bit uh, crazy in their heads. And sometimes I, I do a lot of teaching all over the world. Uh, the latest stint before close down of, every, of the world was in Sydney and in Shanghai on the same trip. So wow. often, not not often, but now and then, I do have to apologize myself because I can see that 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 was was either lost in translation, or lost in my bad bad English, or they don't understand English, and that's why I have to say the magic words. That was a Swedish joke, <laughs> and then yeah, people can, can like, can... all right, I am not stupid. He he he, he meant that as a joke, or even the, that statement alone makes me. Uh, come across as more human. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love that. That's a great line. I mean, I'm, I was literally, as you were telling that story, I was thinking of you in a room in Shanghai doing the cheese shop sketch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is a cheese shop, isn't it? I mean, I could literally see you, you know, walking through that, that sketch and, and maybe yeah. not getting it, uh, getting it across. But anyway, I love my yeah, Again, uh... Two percent of you will actually re remember and know what I talk about. Have you seen John Cleese selling the alphabet? I I haven't, but I've no. seen him do some crazy things. Yeah, tell, me it, the, it, tell me about tell me about that. Is has, that part because I know he's it, done a lot of work? It hasn't as, been broadcast. As a sales trainer. Yeah. Exactly. So it hasn't been broadcasted on the TV. Yeah. Uh, and, and because it's copyright material, it has not been around much either. And it was part of when he did like sales stuff. And that's basically when he's having a customer at the travel agency and he starts to sell all the locations that you can come to where there are pros and cons, mainly the pros of the whole alphabet different locations. So you can imagine the confusion of the person after the whole alphabet, <laughs> like which one should I pick? 
<laughs> so how, when, when and he was when, he was when, doing when, that to to communicate to convey don't give him that many choices I no presume. exactly, was that, exactly. yeah so, okay you're, you're absolutely right how can you mess up a story by by making it too too long-winded or too complicated uh, what what are some of the warning flags for us to take away well, a great sort of um, a moniker to help you think through this or motto to think about is the, the famous expression, I would have written you a short letter, but I didn't have the time. <laughs> exactly. Right? And that, that's been attributed to Pascal and to yeah. Mark Twain and who knows who, and it's probably been said by people throughout history. But the idea is writing a short letter is hard. It's easier to write page after page after page after page. The harder thing is deciding which parts of the story do I keep in and which do I throw out. So being concise is one of the first rules of storytelling. Um, and, and I actually use an exercise called color advance, which is an improv exercise to get people to think about the balance between providing enough details in the story. When I told you about that office I worked in, I wanted to describe those sales, those pieces of sale material that yes. connected the, audio, the, the, the cubicles, because that would bring you into the story. That's a detail. It's like, oh, wow, that sounds cool. That sounds innovative. You know, that sounds like that would have been fun in 1999. Yep. And and then how do I move the story along to the next part of the story and keep the plot moving? And that's the balance that we have to work on constantly as storytellers. Um, and part of that comes from rehearsal, repetition, and then reading audiences and see what resonates yep. with them and, yep. and where are they getting bored and like, let's go. Let's go on to the next part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can see how easily we can carry on this conversation, if not anything else, for our own amusement, because we're having yes. a good time here. Yeah, yeah great time. Uh, so what are you doing when you're not working too much? What's a uh, passion outside work? So uh, I have a bunch of them. Uh, I, I love theater. Uh, so I'm very involved with theater. I actually produce some musicals uh, as a commercial producer, and I'm on the board of the biggest regional theater in the Bay Area, uh, American Conservatory Theater. So that's a passion. I love movies and film, all storytelling. Um, I love to cycle. Uh, I spend a ton of time uh, in the Berkeley Hills uh, and in the environs, riding around up and over hills and uh, burning or, off. Or, uh, course, uh, or cycle? Uh, road bike now. Road bike. So yeah. I have a... Yep. Really nice Colnago, a nice Italian bike, and it takes me up and over the hills. And I love to garden, so I'm out in my garden. So I spend a lot of time outside between my bike and my garden. Okay. I love to cook. I love to eat. I have a million interests. Um, That's and, all right. Uh, That's all right. And, and, you have collected and, them well, No, the it's great. It keeps, it makes life interesting. I get up every day and there's something I love to follow the sports teams that I'm fans of. Uh, and, and I'm a big believer in sort of the power of that tribalism of sports fans gathering yeah. around their teams. And so uh, many, many passions. Um, and frankly, part of my journey, remember that invest in yourself uh, question was when I reached about 50, I asked myself, do I need that next corporate job um, yep. or should I maybe do something where I carve out my own little journey here um, that allows me more time to pursue some of those passions and still do things professionally that I really, really like to do and that I'm probably better at than other things. Indeed. And that's when I, I pivoted to this sort of act of my career um, where I was able to talk about storytelling, um, get involved in theater, work with some nonprofits, teach, um, and, and then spend time with some of these passions. So that was an invest in yourself moment in my life. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and it's sometimes really interesting to reflect on your life. We do that too rarely to think about which 
times we had to pivot to change direction when we had like a massive learning for whatever reason, a success or failure, uh, a person or, or yourself. Um, so yeah, the, it's amazing how years fly by. I have noticed that many people I know have started to get slightly older, even my children. I'm still very mature and <laughs> I got the sense of a child uh, and that keeps me connected with many generations and, and sometimes, yeah, also uh, my, sometimes also my wife. Well, that's one of the reasons why I like to teach um, and why I like working in the arts, uh, because there's a chance to, to either be around people who are younger or connect with your younger self. Um, yeah, exactly. and, uh, and that's been a real joy in my life. I think that's what keeps us young, obviously, is being around young people and people who are really passionate. Everybody I work with, founders, really passionate product people, artists, they're just, they get up every day and they're excited about what they're working on. And if you surround yourself with people like that, Indeed. it's hard not to be excited yourself. Yeah. And also talk about being excited. Uh, the, the whole world of universities, I have, have some experience in the field. Uh, how can people get into universities which are slightly uh, higher, uh, yeah, higher reputation, basically, the, the higher tier universities? Because eventually that can actually help the younger generation with their CV and so on. How can people even get in? And sometimes even the storytelling can help. Oh, it's huge. Uh, you know, it, schools are looking for people especially now more than ever are looking people who will at for people who will bring a, a breadth of life experience and diversity and interest to their school. So if, and every person has something they're interested in, that's probably a little bit unique. Um, and so figuring out again, that self-reflection, what makes me, me, uh, what do I like to do? That's a little bit different. And how can I tell the story of that will make me stand out in the amongst all the other people who were applying for the same thing. Yes. So that doesn't happen. You can't tell that story unless you first reflect and figure out what is that story? What is no. it about me that's compelling as a person? And, and then how can I talk about it and maybe talk about how I've overcome some challenge to achieve it or to do better at it. Um, and, and you're weaving a narrative where again, you're sort of the hero in your story and, yes. and tell, figure out, the story and then tell it uh, that's that's what we have to do to differentiate ourselves amongst everybody else yeah i want to put that in here as well because again we've got a very broad audience and i think some people will also find it very useful uh, regardless what stage they might be at life and also for those people looking for jobs guess what story telling a cv or a personal letter or an interview without any stories whatsoever is is not very appealing yeah, and, and, and not very memorable. And in fact, one of the things I've always encouraged the students that I coach on their career journeys uh, to do is find something in your life experience that's not from your work experience and talk about that. Tell me a story about something you did when you were eight years old um, that tells me something about who you are um, or tell me something about something you did in a program when you were a teenager um, yep. that tells me who you are. And if I hear that story, I'm going to remember that story, uh, you know, and, and, and I've heard some really wonderful stories. Uh, you know, I've heard stories about, uh, you know, there was one guy I worked with who was a, a worked on a, a nuclear submarine. And he talked about the stress of being in that circumstance and being off the coast of, of some very hostile environment yes. and how, what he learned from that. 
Um, that's a compelling story to tell. Tell the story about being a <laughs> nuclear submarine uh, engineer and and on and on. So find that story. And then there are stories that people tell me about things they did when they were. Uh, there was one student I'll never forget who said she used to collect shopping bags when she was a, a, a kid. Uh, what do you mean? Well, you know, you go into a store and some of them have nice bags and any store that had a nice bag, I would collect them. It's like, why did you collect them? Well, I always was fascinated by the way they presented who they were. They presented their brand, probably even before she knew what the word brand yeah, yeah, meant. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And and this person today, I'm still in touch with this person, a wonderful young woman named Sylvia, who's going back to get her an executive MBA, uh, who works for a really tremendous chocolate company. Um out here in in the states and and she's always had this fascination with the story of a product or brand and now she's that's what she's doing professionally but it's yeah. a great story to tell i'll never forget yeah. that story she told about herself yeah no and and again we will also remember her and her bags now because it's again it's a bit quirky uh it's unique uh, and it's memorable so that's that's great so, and that's the, by the way, that's the power of a great story Yeah. that now, if you were talking to somebody about telling a story about themselves, that was memorable. And that might not be from their professional life. You could say, well, I, re I remember talking to this guy named David who told me a story about Sylvia who yep. collected yep. bags when she went yeah. shopping. Yep. And that's the power of storytelling. Now you're taking that story and you're sharing it elsewhere. Yeah. So a number of times over the years, I have seen uh, lots of presentations about experts, and some people say that you should kind of like have like a fame name. So a fame name, basically, basically a, a tagline or a short one or just a one word. Uh, I've seen that work to people's uh, advantage and disadvantage, but yeah. I'm just throwing that out here. Um, fame well, name. Let, let, so, so it's interesting. Um, Given what I do, I yep. thought on my website, I better have a very, very clear value proposition. I talked about yes. value proposition. So if you go to my website, it says, get your story straight. That's the value proposition of what I do. Okay. Yep. And then in writing this book, um, I thought it would be helpful, even though this is helpful for many, many more people beyond startup founders. I like the alliteration of it. And I like that it would at least get people thinking about things that are starting up that are being created. Um, so I went with get your startup story straight. Uh, the point being that whether it's get your story straight or get your startup story straight, those are just a small handful of words that tell you, how is David going to help me? Exactly. And that's literally the value proposition. The yep, title yep, yep. of this book is the value proposition. And I often tell folks, hey, also get your subhead, your, your product description right. Yep. And the product description for this book is the subhead. So you probably can't read that. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But the subhead is the definitive storytelling framework for innovators and entrepreneurs. Love it. That's the product description. Exactly. So if you want to get your startup story straight, Read the definitive storytelling framework for innovators and entrepreneurs. It describes the thing and it describes how you as the reader are going to be different after you read it than before. You will now be able to get your startup story straight. So that's the power of language. We will try the same on you. So in the book in front of me, he says, how to build trust, attract the right partners and create wealth through business and investments. So what what is what is the handle for that? Uh, it's, 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 it's the same book as I way before. Yeah. Well, so trust basically, is the new currency. Is it, 
Yeah, it's yeah, a good exactly. so it's it, a good title. It is a good title, but this is nothing new about trust. But there there are ways that uh, we don't talk about trust because it's actually a really really rare thing to to dare to talk about. When I was researching the topic of trust, I found that almost no one dares to write about it. Number one, <laughs> and those who do, they write about broken trust and, and fixing trust. Right. Well, th- think about. I mean, in your in the Not world how to that build you, it in the first place. Yeah. Well, the world you come from in sales, people yeah. buy things from people, Certainly. and yeah. they don't buy things from people they don't trust. So, and Certainly. how do you establish trust in a relationship where your job literally is to get your customer to buy something on your schedule? Yeah. That was the thing I always found most fascinating about working with sales, and when I had a sales responsibility in my job, it. It wasn't a matter of, well, do they need this? Well, of course, if they don't need this thing I'm selling, um, then I, I shouldn't be wasting my time with them. But that added layer for a salesperson is I got to get them to buy it on my schedule, not their schedule. Yeah. And ho- obviously, <laughs> hopefully, there's an overlap there. But you have a number you have to hit every quarter. They don't have your number. They may have that problem, but they may be on a different trajectory of when they're going to solve it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's a hard. How do you build trust in an environment where you're trying to get them to do something on your schedule? And that salespeople have to do that. Uh, I work with thousands of salespeople, and one thing that is surprising me how many people really dislike their job. I'm less pause there, but yeah. Oh, uh, right, because maybe that, what I just talked about, is just not what they're comfortable with. It's not yeah, exactly. uh, how they like to. I, I had a hard time when I had a sales function because of that factor. Uh, yeah. I wanted to find someone who needed the thing I was selling, and I, you know, and I really got excited about saying, "Hey, I've got something great for you that addresses this thing you need." Uh, but um, it it just would have felt more comfortable to me if it was like, "Well, let's let's talk about that again next year." Great, sure, next year might be the perfect time for you to buy it. I couldn't yeah. do that. I had to be like, "No, no, we need to. I need to walk out of here <laughs> with a sale." Oh, I got the magic wand, and that's that. not well, for everybody. No, no, that's not yeah. for everybody. But for people yeah. who. Or really enjoy that process. Uh, mm. It's the perfect job. Yeah, uh, I've got another thing from a very recent podcast guest. His name is uh, Brendan uh, Kane, and he's from around the corner from you. Uh, normally, he's now moved down to to Texas. But my point is, his latest book is called Hook Point. So the hook point in the story, I would like you to just elaborate on that because it's so important. And where do you even put a yeah, hook point? Absolutely. Yeah. So the way I would describe a hook point is what is that just intensely human thing in your story that anybody can connect with regardless of what your product or service is, whether you're selling a giant data platform or a product to help someone through their cancer uh, management. I talked a little bit about that earlier in this conversation. Uh, wonderful example. Um, interestingly, I gave my book to um, someone who was a, a, an entrepreneur and he read it and he said, how do you help people when you're not there to coach them? Because like I've worked with him and I've coached him and I and I said, well, look for that human thing. And, and the example I used was from his business. So when he told me about his business, which he was building to help patients through managing their cancer care, at one point in the conversation, he just sort of mentioned sort of offhand that it's like having a second full-time job. It's like having a full-time job managing your your cancer treatments or or being a caregiver for someone who is. Indeed. And I was like, wait a minute. 
stop right there. I said, that makes, that's, that's a horrible thought. I mean, it's bad enough that you have to deal with all the anxiety about how you're going to survive this um, and, and the pain of going through the treatments. Um, but on top of that, it's a full-time job. It's like, oh my God, that's overwhelming. I said, try using that in every pitch because it's, it's just something that simple statement will, will really hit your audience. Yes. And he, he said, I started doing it and it completely changed my pitches. He said, every pitch from there on in, it just locked in on, oh my God, that's a huge problem statement. This is a full-time job. So he's building a solution to make it less like a full-time job. He's yeah. building a solution to make managing that, all of the conversations with doctors and insurance companies and what do I eat and all of that stuff, he's making that easier for patients so that it's not a full-time job. But that's the hook point. Yeah, that exactly. Yeah. Per perfect, which leads into a transition into... Uh, another thing uh, is to get feedback from people you talk about, uh, like ask them about the story, ask them about anything. And, and if, if you do, if you don't dare to do that, you need to get uh, some kind of second opinion. Sometimes uh, someone else to, to talk to like offline, if you're preparing yep. a pitch. Well, there's, there's, there's a great lesson um, from the people who make stories for a living. Uh, I have this great respect for the people at Pixar uh, the studio that makes Toy Story and um, so many of the great movies that we've we've grown to love over the years, they have a process for creating stories because that's what that's their assembly line. At the end of their assembly line is a story. Yes. And one of the things they do is they have people um, come together, their creative brain trust, and they watch these storyboards in very early form before they've done any animation. And it's like a comic book where they just stitch together frames of a storyboard, and and they get feedback. And one of the famous stories that they tell at Pixar, and it's this, I talk about this in the book, is um, Finding Nemo, the, the movie about the Marlin chasing after yep. trying to find his son Nemo. When they first did that movie, they used flashbacks. And at the very end of the movie, there was the flashback that showed Nemo getting attacked, by, not Nemo, but uh, uh, Marlin's wife getting attacked by a barracuda. All the eggs yep. are eaten yep. and everyone's gone. When they showed that first version of that film to people, nobody liked the father because he seemed overprotective because that that important scene didn't happen till the end of the movie. So they picked that scene up, put it at the beginning of the movie. And right from the beginning of the movie, you know that Marlon has one thing left in the world and it's Nemo. Everybody else has been killed. So now you understand why he's so protective of Nemo. And the point of, of that illustration is that even the greatest people in the world hadn't quite gotten it right. And it was only by collectively showing it to their brain trust that some people said, wait a minute, we're not feeling, we're not empathizing with Marlon enough. Maybe if we move this here and voila, they solve the problem. The same thing happens when you present your innovation story. People will give you feedback. Something isn't quite working or I love this part. Keep that part about the full-time job. Make that the central part <laughs> of this story. It really makes a difference and you can get that feedback really from anybody. Yeah, and, and and also when you're pitching, and even when you're pitching, I work a lot with uh, raising funds. So when you're pitching for funds, one way to reconnect, regardless whether you get the money or not, is actually to talk about the pitch as such and what what you can uh, do differently and so on. And, and almost everyone is losing out on that opportunity. And pretty much all the people with the money would like them Maybe they don't want to part with their money, but the very least they will do is make it easier for you the next time if you dare to ask. No question.
Well, yeah. this has been a ball chatting with you. Yeah, um, I feel like we could we could talk all night, but it's yeah, only exactly. getting darker, Let, darker there in Sweden. <laughs> it's the beginning of my day here, um, but you you you're you're well into your evening over there. Absolutely. So, what's the best place for people to find out about you and and the book? Well, you, obviously you can not obviously, but it's available on Amazon. Uh, yeah. So just uh, search for "Get Your Startup Story Straight." Uh, and you can buy it there. That's probably the simplest way. But also, if you like other online booksellers, you can find it in other places. Um, it is available on both the. Uh, on, I know it's available on Amazon UK, and I think um, Sweden as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, and and anywhere. Uh, but your people are all over the world, and I, it is being sold and you know on Amazon sites around the world. So that's that's a good thing. It should be pretty universally available. Perfect. If people like to follow your your extra work or any kind of. Yeah, things which are not in the book. Where can people connect with you? What's the best platform if you even have well, time? Can, uh, yeah, LinkedIn is a great place to okay. follow me. Uh, my Twitter account, David A. Reamer. Uh, um, I'm I'm on LinkedIn, so those are places where people can connect. I have a website, DavidReamer.com. Uh, so those are all places where people can follow along. And I'll be doing some more writing over the course of the next coming months and um, and posting some of that content as well. So uh, there'll be a chance to sort of follow some other thoughts I have about storytelling. I'm, uh, sure, I'm sure about that. But start with a book. Start with a book. A good place to book. start. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, until next time, whatever that might be. Actually, I, I had something I wanted to try on you. And the purpose I'd like to try that on you is usually this is said after you hit pause. But the reason I will ask you before I hit pause is just to remind people that you can actually do this. It's not strange. It's not awkward. It's not bad. And it's actually asking a question, for example, about the referral. Who else should I talk to on this lovely podcast? Can you think about anyone in the world you think I should try to get on the podcast? Ideally, some of the ones, some of the ones that you actually know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, There, there's again, it's it's all a question of who you can get access to. But um, yep. I love people who uh, believe in in storytelling and make it a, a central part of what they do. There's a book here on my bookshelf um, by Peter Guber called "Tell to Win." Yeah. Um, the reason why his story is fun is uh, his is a little bit more celebrity filled than my story. My story is all about founders and how founders. Uh, manage things. But Peter Guber, uh, who's a Hollywood executive, he owns sports teams in the United States. He owns the Golden State Warriors for those in the, and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Those are pretty big brands. Yep. Um, and uh, and he's he's worked with some of the most famous uh, uh, artists as a person who worked in the film business. Um, and, but he says the common theme in all of the people he's met who are most successful um, are the great storytellers and they have yeah. a story to tell, whether it's Nelson Mandela or Bill Clinton or, or anybody, uh, that's in the book. So, um, I, I particularly like him in sort of the world of storytelling. Um, and that's, uh, the world I operate. Absolutely. Operate yeah. I, I will do my very best to, to use my sales and persuasion and negotiation skills to get them on. Uh, do you by any chance to have any like locks to his door or is this is a cold introduction? This would be a cold introduction. I'm um, happy. I, I challenge accepted. Yeah. What I will do, though, is I will think about uh, and maybe shoot you a note later. I'll think about other people who I do know. Fantastic. Uh, who might be interesting to talk to. I will tell you, though, that um, it is wonderful to talk to founders who really believe in sharing their story yeah. um, and and get that there's a story to tell. There, there's one young man um, who I'm a big fan of who runs a company called Lime. 
Um, it yep. used to be called Lime Mobility, but it's the company, and I don't know if you have them in Sweden. Is um, it the, but, the electric scooters? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. His name yep. is Brad Bow. Uh, I could definitely put you in touch with Brad. He's in my Perfect. book. He's a, a friend. Uh, he was an intern of mine way back in the day at Yahoo, and he's gone on to run a billion-dollar oh, company. Right. Yeah, um, no, we, we, we can find them littered all over some cities in Sweden and in London. Yeah, well. can't we? Right, <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, in any event, he's a great guy, and he really loves to speak about um, the purpose behind what he's trying to do and how he's built a company right. with a strong purpose narrative. Uh, so he's another person that might be an interesting person to talk to, and I could connect you to him. Perfect. So for people listening, just see how simple that was. You actually dare to ask. You have no idea what might come up in there. In there. It is gold dust this time. Uh, it's both a challenge and, and uh, also very uh, interesting other guests. Uh, I would like to say one more time, thank you for sharing your years of input with the world. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers.